when you get into flow, they've found that you don't use more of your brain like we used to think, oh, we're only using 10% of our brain, we need to use more of it. In fact, in the flow state, we go into localized transient hypofrontality where the part of the brain that makes us human actually starts to shut down and we concentrate effort in the thing that we're supposed to be doing. So we lose our sense of self-consciousness or that Irish thing, well, look at your look at your man. Mm. What's he? We forget about that entirely. You perform five times better in flow than you do whenever you're in the struggle phase. The Mark Pollock story is not just about a man who lost it all, recovered, only to suffer a more devastating loss from which he would rise again. It's about a man who looked at paralysis and asked, can we work together to find a cure for this thing? The Mark Pollock Trust, the charity Collaborative Cures run in the dark, and the masterclasses he offers as a public speaker now are all born out of this simple idea. Face the facts, consider the potential, and be prepared to collaborate with others to find answers to difficult questions. In this very strange time where we are all trying to transition out of lockdown and hopefully the pandemic itself, when a lot of us have lost things and people we previously based our identities upon, I thought there's never really been a better time to have Mark Pollock back on the podcast to hear the full conversation and our previous conversation from 2017 where Mark explains the full extent of what he went through and the leaps and bounds that have been made towards finding that cure for paralysis there's only one place to go patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad this week members got Marion McKeown's hilarious breakdown of the relationship between France and the USA they're at it again Charlie they're having another spat the relationship between France and America I think it's it's always been a bit tempestuous it's probably a good thing they're either all in love or they're in this big snit and they're flouncing off and they're never speaking again and the Sonia O'Sullivan race prep masterclass on Tuesday well, the main thing is to, you know, prepare as much as you can and just to preempt anything that might throw you off a little bit so that you're, you're ready for anything. The best way to do that is to work out a bit of a, a timeline for the day that works back from the race time. There's something for everyone over in the archive with hundreds of episodes from the last eight years of Irishman Abroad. It only takes a few clicks and the price of a coffee and your podcast app will populate with all the episodes you could ever want. It's patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! 
Mark Pollock, it's fantastic to have you back on Irish Man Abroad with, I guess it's two months to go, a little over two months to go to the next Run in the Dark, an event that people will know of where kind of coinciding with the darkness that sweeps across the world in the different time zones, 25,000 people rise up together, put on their reflectors and light up armbands and connect in this really incredible way through this global event where people run 5Ks and 10Ks to raise funds for collaborative cures in the hope of helping to cure paralysis in our lifetime. Do you remember the first one of these was the question I wanted to ask. And was there any thought in your head that it would still be going now 11 years on, 2 million raised. Uh, I mean, surely that was beyond the realms of all hope that you had for this thing. I, I Well, first of all, hello. hello. It's great to be back on, on the podcast. I vividly remember the first run in the dark because I'd been in hospital for the guts of 18 months. I got out of hospital and had to stay in a hotel while my house was being um, converted and we had to stay there for for eight weeks, uh, and I've I got into I got into my house with the lift in it and the wet room in it, the day of the first run in the dark, and it was to be a five and ten k fundraiser, mm. and a friend of mine called Piers White, who has sadly recently died, um, but he he really drove it from from the start, and it was just going to be in Dublin. And then we thought, well, let's go for a sort of a four provinces type thing. So we had it in Belfast and Dublin and Cork and Galway. And then people from around the world who couldn't get back for it, they said, well, let's, can we do it in Sydney and San Francisco and Singapore? And suddenly it turned into into this global event, this kind of New Year's Eve sweeping around the world. And 10, 11 years on, the technology, partly driven by by COVID, I think, um, but the technology is now caught up to the point where everyone can time themselves wherever they are in the world, and they can all be part of the global leaderboard and compare their times against their mate in San Francisco and their mate in Dublin or or wherever it might be, or companies race against each other. But no, it started as a a project to raise money for converting my house and maybe getting a van whenever I didn't know I was going to be able to work or earn any money or just what life was going to be like, whether I would get funding for care assistance. So it was a real emergency job. And then over time, it became very clear that we were going to use it as a platform to allow me to be a guinea pig to try and cure paralysis, but also then to act as a fundraiser for our new charity, Collaborative Cures, which is trying to facilitate collaborations uh, because there's like in so many different parts of life in the world of science and technology and getting that technology out into the world so it can impact people's lives there's desperate fragmentation so and and i definitely want to talk about that because you know i think that fragmentation and kind of competing against others when ultimately we're all pushing for the same goal is a big problem that faces so many industries and so many, uh, you know, so many things that we're driving for today, whether it is climate change or a cure for paralysis. But you mentioned there about not having the money to, to get a van and to kind of get your yourself together. 
I'm really interested in that to start with today, Mark. So we've obviously had our conversations in the past, but I don't think I ever really talked to you about the reimagining of yourself, which is something that will, you know, hit home with a lot of people who are now attempting in many ways to recreate the vision of themselves in the world after perhaps losing their job, perhaps Mm -hmm. seeing the business they worked for go under or the thing that they used to be connected with as no longer relevant. When did you start to feel like I can recreate myself now, uh, even with these significant gaps in what I used to be able to do? And did you write it down? Like, Did you go and did you go and type it up or make a voice note for yourself where you're like, this mm. is who I am going to be and this is who I envision myself being? Uh, well, I think the last time when I was speaking to you on the podcast, I, I, I mentioned a blog that I wrote in intensive care back in 2010, two, two weeks after I'd broken my back, lying there high on morphine, surrounded by people who were paralyzed from the neck down or the chest down or the waist down. And I, at that time, didn't know if the paralysis was going to last. I was still in the spinal shock. It takes 12 weeks, they say, to work out whether you're really going to be paralyzed. So I didn't know if I was paralyzed. I didn't know if I was like all those people that I was sharing a word with. And I wrote this blog called Optimist Realist or something else, questioning how I was going to respond Mm -hmm. to adding paralysis to the blindness. Now, the first part of the blog was questioning whether the things that I used to speak about in my speaking businesses with leaders and teams in in different businesses, I wrote, am I going to use these decision themes to deal with this very real challenge? Or was it just a way of raising some money so I could go off and race to the South Pole? So one of those, uh, combining those decisions together, looking back, I really was reflecting on what happened 12 years before when I went blind, whenever I suddenly lost my identity because I was blind. I was sitting on the sidelines as a spectator, not involved in university life or uh, didn't think I'd get a job, didn't think I would be able to be involved in sport anymore. And it took 10 years to rebuild all those parts of my identity, to move from being a spectator to being a competitor again. So right in those very early moments then, 12 years on, whenever I was lying in intensive care writing that blog, I'd already done it once before and I'd already thought about the loss of identity and what it took to rebuild an an identity. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't come up with the answer in intensive care, but I started two weeks into a six, uh, nearly 18 month hospital stay to consider, you know, do I want to do all of this again? Can I do all of this again? Uh, And I couldn't in the short term, but over the 12 months, 18 months, two years with run in the dark, supporting and all those thousands of people, not just the money side of it, which of course is critical, but the, the people supporting volunteering, all the people that I had around me, that sort of support structure, that helped me to rebuild my identity again. But it was it was different. 
Mm. It was different the second time around. See, I don't think any of us really think about our identity consciously until, you know, something happens that strips it away. I mean, what's happened to so many people now is that they they probably realized that maybe there was a vacuum in, in that that identity that they previously had might have been too connected to that company or that yeah. particular job or that paycheck or that car. The master classes that you're doing at the moment, these seminars that you do, are split in three, right? So let's talk about this in three phases here because they're they're really massively interesting to me. First is turning challenges into opportunities. That's the resilience cycle, as you call it. The second is exploring performance and that kind of competitor's mindset and seeing where your potential is. And the third is collaborating to solve complex problems. And all three are obviously so fundamental to you, Mark, and what you've done. But, uh, you know, they're, they're again, they're pretty lofty, right? Especially when somebody's at their lowest ebb. Like, if somebody had walked up to you in what you just described there, in the bed, uh, figuratively for someone listening now who's feeling like they're on the canvas and said, mm. hey, I've got uh, three masterclasses for you here on uh, turning challenges into opportunities and perfor performance potential and collaborating for complex solutions. How do you think you would have responded? And how do you, when you meet resistance to these three, how do you work around that? got lots of different answers so i'm going to pause while i while i try and think of a short answer which is <laughs> of course the big the big challenge look if someone came in and said if if i came in and spoke to me about what i do <laughs> with the I time machine and the delorean outside yeah. <laughs> i would absolutely hate me <laughs> so, so and, a, and and an example of that was i think it was maybe three or four months in uh, and I, was, I hadn't been out of bed yet I hadn't certainly hadn't accepted that I was paralyzed. I was per perhaps deni still denying it. And I was certainly angry, mm. pissed off about what was going on. And I was definitely in the, in the miracle seeking camp still. And part of the psychological rehabilitation is, uh, and I was in England whenever this was happening in Stoke Mandeville, a guy from the spinal injuries association over there, came in and you know he was doing really well as a paralyzed guy and I had no interest in a guy doing really well you know working and getting around and living on his own and rolling around in his wheelchair I didn't want to hear a good story because I didn't have an aspiration to be that guy I was still keen to recover and then they brought in someone who'd won two gold medals at the Paralympics. And I thought, I, I, like, I have no interest. This is not inspiring me. And I, I, and I, because I just didn't want, to, I didn't want to be paralyzed and therefore I didn't want to be like them. Yeah. But I knew what was going on. I mean, this is, this is a, a well-trodden path. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about this in Death and Dying. Um, and she says that human beings, as I sort of alluded to there a moment ago, we deny what's going on whenever something happens. And this, is, this isn't this is just when you break your back or go blind. This is 
in a pandemic this is when you lose your job this is when you lose motivation for the thing that you're doing it's everywhere we deny what's going on that's an initial reaction we get frustrated and angry we hope for a miracle she calls it bargaining we see we feel sorry for ourselves and then we get to some kind of resolution and when those inspirational paralyzed people were coming in to inspire me I was still denying what was going on. I didn't want to talk to them. So there's a there's a timing element here because we're human beings uh, and it takes a while to adjust. And I often get asked, you know, I've got a friend next door who has had something go wrong, you know, but they're not, you know, they're not do, they're not out there doing it. And you know, how do I support them? And and I'm well. I described the Elizabeth Cooper Ross model, and I say just it's a, maybe a, a question of of timing because I think when we talk about resilience, there's an element of it sort of seems to be associated with toughness, mm. and maybe I'm part of the problem because I'm spouting on about how how it's done after you've got through it, but in fact resilience is about about being being human, about being emotional, and then finding a path forward. Wow, wow, wow. Hold on. I mean, you're right about the connection between resilience and toughness, because that's like even the language I use to describe the canvas and, you know, pulling yourself up when you're down. It's it's all so bound up in each other. But what you're saying is that it's actually so much of resilience is connected to allowing yourself to to find to to float to like why, how would you describe that because you know there'd be a lot of people going nah mark you've got at some point you've got to slap yourself around the head and go come on you can do it you uh, do you do yeah. you do so at at you do at some point the question is the question is at what point and you know i but, in that blog that I mentioned, Optimist Realist or something else, I, I talk about Admiral Stockdale's response, or I, I spoke about in the blog Admiral Stockdale's response to being a prisoner of war in in Vietnam, and and how he says that the ones who didn't survive were the optimists because they were cheerful, and whenever whenever they didn't get out, they became disappointed, demoralized, and died in their cells. Uh, and I I think he was. He was a, re- a realist because he confronted the facts of his circumstances. He worked out what he could do about it. Some a lot of things he could do, a lot of things he couldn't, a lot of aspects he couldn't do anything about, but he could do something. And then he kind of extended timelines towards a better future. So this model that I have developed is built on. Stockdale's response, facts, anchoring, hope, but but it's really built on what we've known for thousands of years. The Stoic philosophers, uh, two and a half thousand years ago, were speaking about this kind of stuff. How do we? Epictetus said, "Externals I cannot control, but my choices with regard to them I do control. Those where will I find good and bad in me in my choices?" So we can't control the external world. We can control our choices. And it's the difference between capital S Stoic philosophy, which was filled with 
an acknowledgement that we were human beings, all that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stuff mm-hmm. that came much later. So capital S Stoic philosophy allows for human emotions and resilience. Small s Stoicism is the traditional British stiff upper lip, be tough, be a hard man or a hard woman, don't show your emotions, the kind of Victorian lens perhaps, where we're not, we're somehow not human. And I think they they often get mixed up, capital S Stoicism and small s Stoicism, they're entirely different. Well, I wondered when going back through your physical achievements from, you know, 1998 onwards, you know, the rowing, in terms of the rowing that you were involved in, training for rowing, people might not know this, but like it's, it's ridiculously intense. It's more intense than a lot of people would imagine. And, you know, you win these winning bronze and silver at Commonwealth Games just doesn't happen by accident, Mark, because, you know, it's mm. it's not kind of, oh, I got lucky on the day. Yeah. You know, Ironman events and round the world yacht races, this is carved into your your being and how your mind worked. I mean, you must understand both of those big S and small S, because to do all of those things must require both. Do you think sometimes that when you're talking to people, a bit like when Sonia O'Sullivan is talking to us about running, that I feel like it's a bit like Tony McCoy trying to explain to people how to ride ponies, that it's it's like you're you're trying to explain something that's in you that they may never understand, but you're trying to translate it in terms that perhaps they can apply to their own life. Well, let me, let me answer in two, in two ways. I, capital S Stoicism, Stoic philosophy, is the route that I go. I, re, I reject small S Stoicism as a reasonable idea completely okay. because, we are, because we are humans. But that is not to say that Stoic philosophy doesn't require you to make consistent decisions again and again and again that are tough choices. So, so the the model that I've been using, pre blindness, post blindness, post paralysis, in rowing, in adventure racing, in our efforts to cure paralysis, is this cycle: dealing with a bit of emotion, emotion beforehand, and then eventually getting myself onto this resilience cycle of con- confronting the facts, just as a stock take, then anchoring myself with a sense of control by accepting that I've got options, even when they're not perfect, and then constantly moving beyond survival mode towards some better future fueled by hope. And, you know, confronting the brutal facts, if I just if I just go through them, like confronting the brutal facts, it really comes from Stockdale's quote, which is, uh, you can never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current circumstances, whatever they might be. Right. So the discipline to confront the brutal facts, I think is actually misleading slightly because the brutal suggests negative. In my case, I can't see and I can't walk. Clearly, those are the brutal facts that I need to confront. But they're so obvious 
you know, I don't need to think too hard about that. And the brain is wired to to look at the problems. I think the discipline is often to go beyond that, to acknowledge that I can use my arms, that I didn't get a brain injury, that I'm surrounded by great people or opportunities ahead. So the discipline to confront the brutal facts is in fact that I do have a chance. I, I do have a chance of, of making the best of this. And in fact, with the supports that I've got, it would nearly be irresponsible of me of me not to do that. So, so I'm constantly doing that for the big stuff and I'm doing it on a daily basis. I'm looking at, naturally I'm thinking, can I make a decision that influences A, B and C or is it just outside my control? And finally on the hope side, am I just in the weeds here cycling around in survival mode or do am I really going for something, some aspirational goal out there in the future? And I, I think if you mentioned Sonia, Sonia, I presume, just has a way of operating and has a way of thinking very different to mine, perhaps, because of uh, I'm not I'm loath to compare myself in any way to Sonia Sullivan, who is uh, amazing. <laughs> oh, I think there's, but, there's, there's sincere comparisons to be made, but go on. But I think I think it's an it's a pattern of thinking, which is through practice hardwired into my brain that that's just that's how I was responding to winning and losing as a as a as a 15 year old in in rowing in in the river in Belfast I was ready for it mm. when I went blind I was even more prepared for dealing with this after my paralysis but I'm running that cycle time and time again and I keep catching myself out and getting things mixed up and then I have to just anchor myself back down and run through the facts, the anchoring and the hope again and again and again. Yeah, you see, I spent some of this week just uh, researching Kelly Harrington, actually. Um, oh, yeah. F- for whatever reason, sometimes I, I, I research guests that I don't have yet, that I mm-hmm. know at some point there will be a, a chance to sit down with Kelly. And Kelly's so connected to the common person in so many ways, like the regular person can really identify with Kelly Harrington because of the holding down of the job as much as anything else. The the resilience and discipline to maintain the job while reaching the absolute summit of her physical endeavour. And that thing you're saying there about coming back and rooting yourself, everything that I read about her talked about her learning that and learning that, that people believing that these things are in the realm of Mark Pollock, Tony McCoy and Sonia O'Sullivan is a failure to confront the brutal facts, is it not? That actually one of the brutal facts is your root, that your root is actually, it's brutal to think about it, but it's going to be a tough road, but the brutal fact is that that's your only road to to get to that point. Is that am I right on that? Well, I, well, I, th- I think I think so. And I, you know, I've listened to people talk that you have that you have interviewed, and I suspect Kelly Kelly's card is now marked. You'll be uh, no <laughs> doubt getting that interview interview soon. I think when I listen to these people who have achieved great things, like I would imagine. 
it's not too difficult for Kelly to anchor herself with the reality of winning and losing whenever a punch in the face can 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 floor you. Mm. You know, whenever she's so connected with her community and I was listening to all of the all of the radio reports, whenever she works in the job that she does, it's all built on a foundation of of facts and and I suspect the you know, if you interview a lot of a lot of sports people, they're probably speaking in similar ways to what Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca would have spoken like two and a half thousand years ago. You know, the facts, like it doesn't really matter how many medals you win or championships you win or whatever. It it comes and goes. And the next time out, you could get you could get beaten. So all you've got, all you've got for what it's worth is what you've got. It doesn't actually matter what people think if we're all running around Kelly now saying Kelly you're the best thing sliced bread well where were we four years ago or eight years ago and where will we be in you know 12 years 16 years when she's retired you know she she won the she won her medal because of the work she did her group that she's got her got around and it's hers it's not our it's it's not ours even though we're all cheering for Mm. and that's you know that's the behaviour of a of a stoic, whether uh, you know whether she name, names it like that or not. Whether I knew I was like that when I went blind, I didn't lab- I didn't know about stoicism then. I didn't know about stoicism when I was fifteen. But you do hear in the language of all sports people or people who've achieved great things, they are coming back to the facts again and again and again. Not not the waffle. Not the noise, just what's real and what's not real. So there you have it, the first part of my conversation with Mark Pollock. The run in the dark obviously takes place on the 17th of November. It would be brilliant if you signed up at runinthedark.org. Markpollock.com is the place to learn more about Mark and perhaps enlist him to speak at your business or organisation. I have an awful lot more of this chat for you. I would love you to come on over and hear it at patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Trust me, it is something special. And the breakdown of the next two masterclasses is something that honest to god really helped me this week so head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad this is a crowdfunded podcast if you want us to keep going if you want us to be able to keep doing this uh, that's how we do it is through your help if you have an extra fiver in the month throw it in there and in return i'll keep giving you multiple episodes each week extra content and access to the full archive there's even 15 percent discount on tickets to my shows coming up across the new year so sign up today there's never really been a better t- time with a 15 percent discount available now on annual membership shout out to brian conley on sound john marr for his research tina and mikey for making it possible and i guess i'll see you over there at patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad